Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Of mountains. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today's topic is the defense of mountains. But before we get into that, firstly I wanted to wish you all a very happy new year. I hope this year brings you good things. <laughs> that uh, 2003 is, is better than 2002. Uh, unless you had a really good 2002, in which case let's just you know, keep that going for you. I, for the first thing that I'm going to be doing this year, I'm excited because I'm about to go down to Battle for the Ring. Uh, in fact, a few days after this episode comes out, I will be on a plane at a very early hour. My flight leaves at 5.45 in the morning. It was cheaper, <laughs> which is why we went with that one, of course. And uh, I'll be there for a nice week. I'm looking forward to it. I get to see a unit mate who I haven't seen in a very long time. Uh, in fact, I get to see several people I haven't seen in a long time. Battle for the Ring was once a, a staple of my event schedule. It was one of those ones that we made every single year, not just because we found it to be a very good and enjoyable event, which it is, but also because it's an excuse to go to Southern California in a very cold time of the year. You know, we, we still have snow everywhere. We just got done with a, you know, negatives everything stint. And this is only January, and we're having this little Chinook, is what it's called. And for those of you unfamiliar with that, it's a warm spell during an otherwise cold time like winter. And so a Fulja, we call it a false spring or a fool's spring. Because every time it comes up, you want to believe. You want to believe. You're like, oh, maybe the warm is coming back. Maybe this awful, soul-rending cold will be leaving us. Oh, no. I'm a 35-year-old veteran of this place, and I know better than to hope at this time of year, it will return. It, right now, people are out and about and they're like, oh my gosh, it's in the 20s. This is nice and warm. How are you doing? This is a, a heat wave we're having. So Battle for the Ring is nice, if even just for that. To get into Southern California and enjoy the warmth and hopefully not the typhoons. That's another thing I've been looking at in the weather is, is that uh, parts of California have been underwater, quite literally. And I am a land-based a terrestrial mammal, and I don't do well underwater. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that we're going to have a much drier stint during our time down there. But who knows? Who knows, right? we got to go prepared for anything. That's the whole point of of what we talk about in preparedness for the art of war. we got to go in preparedness for heat, because it's been hot down there before. You know, it's been dusty. They had to have something covering your mouth. Otherwise, you know, you'd be breathing in a bunch of dust and hacking it up. So everybody was wearing schmogs or bandanas. It was just something to cope with it. You know, it's been very warm before, so you bring loose-fitting linen clothes. 
that you're able to kind of hang out in. And then it's been raining before. I think the last time I went, there were rivulets, little can canyons everywhere across the site because it was just, it was just coming down. And it didn't keep up quite that strong for the event. It was actually fairly dry for it, but it was wet enough that there was uh, a requirement for like straw and hay to be put down in places so that people weren't just tearing the bejesus out of the turf. So we don't know. I don't know what to expect going down there weather-wise. It's not something that anybody can control, unless they can, in which case, if you're listening, please give us a nice weekend. It would be very, very nice to have that. But we don't get that in wargaming or in war, these ideal conditions that we always want. And so we plan for the worst. I'm going to be going down and I will have extra socks and extra undergarments because those are very important things. And I'm going to have them sealed in plastic bags so that if my stuff does get wet for whatever reason, I will at least have clean, dry things for that because you don't want, you don't want soggy socks all the time. You got to have dry feet. That's very important. Anybody who studied World War I will know that dry feet, very important. So in, on that same vein, if, uh, if you, dear listener, are from Southern California or uh, from somewhere else and are intending on attending the event, I am looking for interviews. I want to interview as uh, a wide a swath as people as I can. I'm looking to interview some of the event coordinators. I want to interview some of the tournament winners. I certainly want to get out there and interview some of the movers and shakers that are going down and even new people. New people who have a fresh perspective on what's going on and, a, a, you know, a different view, perhaps, on, you know, the comings and goings of the sport and of the community. So I want to get a, a good a good breadth of people. So if you, dear listener, your dear citizen, as uh, the beginning part implies, would like to have an interview, just check it. Check me out. I'll be wandering around. I'll be the, the dude with the beard, because that's what I've got right now is a, a prolific beard. So, looking forward to Battle for the Ring, looking forward to, you know, whatever it, it might bring, politically or weather-wise or fighting-wise. I'm looking forward to getting out there and meeting, meeting new people and seeing people I haven't seen in a while. And I encourage you all to be getting out there and doing stuff, too. It's good for the soul to engage with your community and spend time with the people that you like and love. Well, now I'm done being mushy, and I think it's time to move on to our main topic today, which is the defense of mountains. Real quick before we get into the, uh, you know, the, the meat and potatoes of this particular episode, which is the defense of mountains, I just wanted to make a note on flanking positions. There was a short chapter between the strong positions one that we just covered and this particular defense of mountains. And really what it boiled down to was that all strong positions are by their very nature flank positions. Because the only option that you have is to go around them, if you're logical. Because as we had talked about, a for something to be strong, it needs to also be unassailable. Which is a silly word, especially when it comes to different siege tactics, and if you do, if you know anything about 40k, the Iron Warriors would probably chuckle at the idea of an unassailable position. But for all intents and purposes, if we have done as, as best we could to make our position unassailable, then in, in that particular case, we would also have again the flank position, because anytime our opponent has to move past us, we now have the ability to hit them either 
you know, on the side, on the oblique, or attack their baggage train line of communications. So by its very nature, a strong position becomes a flank position. Not all flank positions are strong positions, but all strong positions are flank positions, if that makes sense. Let's move on now to the talk of mountains, a subject that is near and dear to my Montanan heart as I sit here gazing out over my mountains and thinking about how difficult they would make any sort of campaign. And there was a part of me that kind of wanted to skip over this section. I was like, okay, where, when are we going to actually be fighting large action in mountains? And then I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, some, some war games would demonstrate this in some ways. And there's some battlefields. I've, I've absolutely seen some scenarios where people set up a field in such a way that it mimics uh, like a mountainous condition. And more so than just a bridge battle. We're going to cover the defense of rivers here um, within the next episode or two. But... This one's a little bit more complex, so it's a little bit different than just a bridge battle. It is a uh, mountain battle, and I have done something resembling a mountain battle. I think I've said before that I went out to Ragnarok, and the site that they had at the time, one of the places that we went to fight was a mountain. Like There was a mountain, and then there was a couple of other smaller ones around it, and there was maneuvering that happened all around it because of the trails and control of the trails. And it was a very interesting battlefield, very chaotic battlefield in terms of coordination. Because you couldn't. It's like, you know, okay, I can't see my friends. I can't, I, we have to operate independently. And so in that moment, at that particular event, during that scenario, I learned precisely what Clausewitz was saying in this chapter, which is that mountains kind of deserve their own special set of rules for tactics and theory. Because... They are totally different. It's a totally different ball game than playing in an open field. It's a totally different ball game than the conventional tactics that we would normally be used to. In fact, a lot of the rules, a lot of these theories, and, and, and of course tactics that we're going to put forth in this episode, are counterintuitive. And I agreed with it. At first I was just kind of like, no, that can't be the case. And then I'd think about it and look back at history, and I was like, you know, he's, he's actually right. He's actually right about some of this stuff that I you know, would have normally disagreed with. So let's, let's jump into it. Let's talk about some defense of mountains. Well, the first off is, like I was saying, that this influence of the mountains is great, which is why we have our own special rules and tactics for it. One of the big things, and the first thing to really come to mind, I think, for any of us who are you know, thinking about some sort of battle in the mountains, is that it seriously hinders our mobility. We don't have the same you know, options to maneuver, to go wide against our opponent's flanks because it's blocked. It's blocked by, you know, impassable terrain for all intents and purposes. And, you know, he addressed in this chapter, he said, you know, a lot of times infantry can go off-road. They can, you know, go into the mountainous country itself. It is grueling, but cav doesn't work well there, and artillery takes forever to move up through there. A little bit different if we're dealing with bows and arrows, but the, the principle is still the same. The mountain is a very difficult thing to cross, tactically or strategically speaking, considering that you can watch your opponent doing it. But because of this mobility being hindered, it also gives us a solid place to anchor our flank. As we had talked about in a previous episode, anchoring our flank is a really good way to avoid being flanked, especially if we are a smaller force who is trying to manage the battlefield. So that's nice and easy here. Boom, boom, either side. Or if we're fighting up against a mountain, boom, right there. Easy flank protection. So that's a very 
a very good thing to be able to depend on for anybody. And it also affects our line of retreat in our communications. Understandably, in, in some cases, ideally, you know, it's, it's far more secure because again, it's harder to move up and around. It's harder to get that flanking position. However, if our opponent manages to do so, it is really hard to recover from that because in an open field, in an open condition, we can move our supply line. Like, okay, crap, this, this one got ambushed, but if we move slightly over here, we might be able to avoid that. Uh-uh. If it's blocked, it's blocked. And that can be an issue. So, again, this goes back and forth. The mobility hindering, the ability to anchor our points, but again, that lack of mobility to be able to react, it really, it really uh, is something to really consider. And when we say defensive mountains, it also can, it can be a phrase that means two different things. The first one, of course, is that we are a defender in the mountains, defensive mountains. But the other way of saying it is that the mountains are defending us, defensive mountains. And this goes back and forth because we, if we're using the terrain to our advantage, then it's not just a matter of normal defensive tactics. We also have the mountain on our side and we're manipulating the terrain. We're manipulating the situation in order to gain ourselves a significant advantage. And so you defend the mountain and the mountain defends you is a really good point he made that I liked. One of the counterintuitive rules that is true in the mountains, because this entire show, especially throughout Clausewitz, we have been talking about the importance of numbers, that numbers, numeric superiority, is one of the most important factors when determining the outcome of a battle. When we're sitting there thinking, okay, well, what, what, is, what are the considerations that we've got? Numeric superiority is right up there. It's very high up there. In fact, it, it, Clausewitz says it's the most important thing. Here, in a mountainous situation, that kind of goes on the flip side. Those, those numbers that we're used to relying upon actually become a hindrance in mountainous country. And we start to see that a small force, the smaller the force is, the better they are able to operate in mountainous conditions. And we're going to go over this a little bit more in, uh, in a few minutes. But that's something to keep in mind as well. Think about Thermopylae and the great equalizer that was the mountains when the Persian force was trying to come through and the, you know, the Trojans who had really good gear and really good training were just holding their own against this because both of their flanks were anchored. And that one-on-one -on -one, without the ability to bring their numbers to bear, Persia was at a very big disadvantage because that was a huge part of their technique was to overwhelm with this massive army that they had. So we've seen it. We've seen it in history and we've seen it uh, in a lot of different ways as well. So we're going to go over that a little more in a, in a little bit. And lastly, one of the, the big things that's on our side, if we're defending the mountains, is the ability to prep the field. We know where our opponent is going to come. It's not a matter of saying, okay, well, I think they're going to come this way. I think they're going to come that way. It's pretty darn certain based on the layout of wherever we are, the conjunction of valleys and whatnot, that we can predict where our opponent is going to come from. So we can plan accordingly. We can uh, assign posts, uh, uh, pickets and that sort of thing out ahead and, and kind of prep the battlefield that way. We can mine areas if we're in a more, I, I mean, that's, you know, speaking in an ethical sense, not great because there's still kids that are getting blown up in Afghanistan for mines that were placed during the Soviet war. And during the American war, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that one was necessarily better than the other, but 
in a tactical sense, being able to prep the field in this way to anticipate your opponent coming through and to use this again as an equalizer, a punishment for every step that they take, that's something that's afforded to the, to the defense. The offense doesn't get that benefit. However, there are some serious drawbacks to being a defender in the mountains. The first one is that proper and immediate pursuit is sacrificed. If you recall back to our episode on pursuit, it is the idea of, okay, we've, we've won the battle, we've caused our opponent to start to quit the field, or you know, they're, they're starting to retreat for some other reason, and we press upon that whether that is in a larger sense with our force against their force moving forward, trying to confront again, trying to harry so that they can't come back together, or whether it's just one single defender that we are attacking or that we're, we're counterattacking. We're like, okay, we got this advantage. I've, you know, I've taken their arm, I've taken their leg, or I've put them on their back foot. This is the time to strike. This is the time for that pursuit that actually gains us any sort of decisive victory. That is denied to the defender in this particular case, it is really hard to achieve a decisive vic victory as a defender in the mountains. Because again, this pursuit is denied to us. We're not able to bring up our calves and on the flanks and be prepared for it because the calves have to navigate their way through the infantry who are, you know, right where they are. So this ability to transfer force, this ability to bring things up from the rear. And again, the larger our force, the harder this is you know, kind of conversely to mind, you know, the numbers are really nice, but trying to maneuver them in a tight space where they all have to contend with one another and there's always chaos. You know, it, no matter what the SOP is, no matter what kind of organization is attempted to be imposed, there is always chaos when it comes to logistics. And if we're dealing like a, with a really slim line like this, those logistics get infinitely more complicated. Which again, is kind of counterintuitive, but when you think about it, it makes sense. And so this, the ability of pursuit, is one of the serious drawbacks is that we are hindered in our ability to properly pursue. Another huge hindrance here is support can be difficult to bring up, like we had talked about before, because of these, the constraints and, you know, where do we put the baggage train? Where do we put, we put HQ? Where do we put the reserves? Trying to move all of this around in a sudden way. You know, saying, okay, we need people to get up and plug this hole or to hit a little bit harder in this section. It's harder to bring them up because of the congestion that's going on here and the fact that it has to be brought up along a long line. We can't just spread our forces out horizontally behind our line so that we have things kind of ready to go, our zone defense, as it were, being able to move potentially where the issue is. We're going on, basically everything is, a, is forced into a column. And trying to maneuver anything through that, we've, we've all done it. Think about a bridge battle. You know, think about a really tight space. Now, if you were in the back of that, and you had an opportunity, and you needed to be in the front of it, how quickly can you get up there? Not very. Especially when you're thinking about a larger field battle, when you were able to just kind of maneuver where you needed to be quickly. So when we think about this in a practical sense, he's absolutely right here. So that pursuit is sacrifice, support is difficult to bring up. We are blind to our opponent in most cases, because they can hide behind the same ridges that we can hide behind. And so as the defender, you know, are they going to come up from a different direction? Again, let's, let's quote Thermopylae, where the forces of the Persians were able to get up and around behind them. They wouldn't necessarily have been able to see that or be able to react to it in time because it was behind a mountain. <laughs> Mountains are hard to see through. 
when we think about Custer's last stand here in eastern Montana. Part of the reason that he just walked and kicked a massive hornet's nest was because he didn't understand how big that hornet's nest was. The bulk of it was hiding behind a mountain. And so suddenly he's, you know, he's facing the entire Sioux Nation who was very, very, very ready to get rid of this particular guy who had committed the atrocities that he had. But it was mountains. Like if he was in an open plain and he would have seen this massive army in front of him, I, you have to think that even somebody as vain as Custer would call for assistance, call for help. But the mountains tricked him and led him into a disastrous situation. So that is also something to remember. This lack of observation works for our opponent and it works for us, but it's definitely a consideration. And then again, like we had talked about before, with the, the ability of the, you know, the line of retreat or the line of communications being both very secure and also very fragile, well, we're in danger of being cut off. We're very much in danger of being cut off, especially if our larger force is in there. We can get trapped inside of a mountain very easily. We're in mountainous country very easily, and then it's hard to come out because then we are having uh, trouble bringing our forces to bear. All our opponent has to do is guard whatever passes or passages there are out of this mountainous terrain. And if we are all spread out and disparate or only able to function in these columns, then they've got us. They've got us in a real way. We're kind of trapped in this area. So one of the things that Clausewitz recommends is that if we are going to use mountains in our defense, that we do not man them with our primary force. That our primary force needs to be able to maneuver, needs to be able to be out in the field. And so what we're talking about here isn't necessarily tactics. What we're talking about now is operations, you know, movement and coordination within a theater of war. But this also applies. Like I said, this is really interesting information, and so I, I wanted to share it. And there are war games to which this sort of thing applies as well. So let's, let's talk about a couple, a couple points that he, he wanted to make in this next section. He had four different points that we wanted to touch on here. The first one being mountains as a battlefield. The influence of these mountains on the part, other parts of the country, their aspect as a strategic barrier, and how they affect the provisioning of an army. So this first consideration, mountains as a battlefield. When we're dealing with who is going to be playing what role, the offense or the defense, again, counterintuitively, the offense actually is in a better position to achieve victory, like a positive result, a decisive result in this particular case because of their motion, because of how they are, are moving into this particular thing. If, if they are able to achieve a tactical victory, they can act upon it far faster than a defender can because their momentum is already headed in that direction. They're already planning. They're already engaging in their pursuit rather than a defender who says, okay, now I need to counterattack, even though I've been in my emplaced you know, defensive positions. And so the offense is able to achieve a more decisive result if they achieve a tactical victory. And so that kind of tells us that we want to avoid uh, mountains as kind of a defensive battlefield. This is counterintuitive because in our minds, it's like, okay, we'll block up those passages. We don't, we, they can't bring their full forces to bear. We're going to be good in here. But again, if they do manage to achieve victory, every single step that they take against our primary force is a serious drawback for us in the position that we are. So what are we to do? What are we to do? 
Well, these rules are because of larger forces. So if we have our primary force in the mountains and our opponent is attacking the mountains with their primary force, it does convey this particular advantage. But what if we're dealing with smaller forces? Well, at that point, it does favor the defender because at this point, we know that the goal is not a decisive result. That's not going to necessarily happen for us as a defender in a mountainous area. And so by using our smaller forces here with that understanding, with the understanding that we are not going for a decisive result, but we have different purposes for our forces there, then we can move forward with wise action concerning mountains. So let's talk about these for a second. What actions, what operations are these smaller forces good for? Well, the first one would be a delaying action, right? Because the smaller forces are able to kind of use the numeric advantage to their advantage, and again, prep the battlefield and everything, we're able to use them as a delaying action. We don't have to win the fight. We don't have to make sure that our opponent is defeated in a super decisive manner, as long as we're able to delay our opponent, hold them at bay. And so in this way, a smaller force is extremely useful because it, it can go do the delaying action and then scoot up out of there. And if our opponent is using their primary force, they're not gonna be able to move as quickly because of the same rules we were talking about. They're trying to move through these narrow passages, which really limits the mobility and the ability to move forward quickly in that pursuit, especially if we are already planning on withdrawing. But the whole point is a delaying action, not an actual battle. Where again, we're not trying to achieve true victory here, unless it is absolutely attainable. The, you know, the opponent does something really silly and their leader is exposed to us or something like that, in which case you got to take that opportunity. But the point of a delaying action is just that. Now, when we're dealing with a smaller force, then we can repulse that opposing action. We can try to achieve some form of positive result by repulsing that small opposing action and making sure that that doesn't come through. So a delaying action against a larger force, but a repulsing action is perfectly fine against a smaller force of about equitable size, of course. And when we say positive, I, I you know invite you to look back Ooh, I can't remember how many episodes now, but when we're talking about that there's a difference between victory and like a positive result. You know, we can defeat our opponent in the field, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we've achieved a positive result unless we are able to follow up upon it and kind of reap the rewards of that. That's why this pursuit is so necessary. So even opposing this action, that doesn't achieve us a positive result, but it can enable us to function better elsewhere. Another thing that smaller forces are good for in the mountains is to make demonstrations, to mess with our enemy. You know, if we're gathering for a, a battle kind of on the outskirts of these mountains and our people keep coming in and harrying their, their back line, you know, maybe raiding a couple of camps or caravans, that, that's going to keep our opponent on their toes. Again, these actions don't necessarily need to be super game changers. They don't need to be, okay, we blew up our opponent's entire arsenal. They don't have any more guns or gunpowder or arrows or whatever the case may be. We've got this. We're done. That's not even what's necessary here. What's necessary is the chaos that these smaller forces can create. And this, I mean, we see, we see the same things even in an open field when we have smaller flankers moving around and kind of hitting the sides. They don't need to defeat the opponent. In many cases, they don't even have to throw a single shot. They just have to distract their opponent long enough for the main action, for the primary force, to accomplish its objective and go after its positive result. And so having these demonstrations, being able to kind of mess with our enemy, get them on tilt, huge advantage of using smaller forces in mountains.
Mountains are also, of course, useful whenever, whenever we're in a position where we are not intending to accept a great battle, where we're not looking for that decisive result. Maybe we're escaping through it, or maybe we're, we're kind of moving through a different area, but using these de delaying actions. These smaller forces are good, again, when we're not anticipating this bigger fight. As I had talked about before, we're not looking for decisive results. We're not even looking for necessarily a positive result out of these fights with these smaller forces. They have different purpose. They have a different purpose than that. And so when we think about it too, we're not necessarily dealing with conventional forces in this manner. In fact, mountains favor militia, revolutionary and other irregular forms of troops. I know I've talked quite a bit about the Afghan war, but it's a, another perfect example of this. You know, the, the mountains that are there in the Punjab region, they're, you know, they're very rocky. The locals know them extremely well, and through irregular tactics, they are able to run circles around conventional fighters. They're using these advantages, these mountains to their advantage, and a much smaller force, much smaller force than was being brought to bear against them, but they were able to achieve victory. We're not in Afghanistan anymore. Russia isn't in Afghanistan anymore. Britain isn't in Afghanistan anymore. They won many, 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 many times because they used this particular principle to their advantage. And so, kind of going back and, and refreshing this particular point, when we're thinking about mountains as a battlefield, we're not thinking about them as big climactic fights. We're not thinking about bringing our primary force to bear in the same way that we would in a conventional fight. What we're looking for is to use our like smaller forces, perhaps even irregular forces like you know special ops, to do things like delaying actions or repulsing smaller actions or making demonstrations to mess with our enemy, but always understanding that we are not trying to accept a great battle there and that it is better suited for these smaller forces, particularly irregular forces that can just kind of dissolve into the mountain itself and use that obscuring factor as their main weapon at that point against their enemy. The second point that Clausewitz makes, or that we're kind of talking about, is the influence of the mountains on other parts of the country. The nice thing about mountains is that you can seize large portions of territory and not have to protect them in the same way that we would when we're dealing with an open plain. You know, if I've got certain outposts here or there, or forts here and there, uh, on an open plain, it is fairly easy for an opponent who knows what they're doing to maneuver around them, to bypass them. But if I've got an entire mountain range under my control that my opponent needs to move through to be able to maintain that land, I know where my opponent is going. I know what routes they can take, and I can choke those routes with either, again, traps or with forces meant to delay or repulse. And so it's easy to control. And it is much easier to control than it is with open terrain when we're dealing with these smaller, more confined spaces. Open lands are so much easier to change hands. We see it all the time on just about every single battlefield. And, and you will have seen it, especially if you've been in physical wargaming. You know, one flank goes forward, comes back, goes forward. There, there is no real possession of places on the battlefield, typically. It is in a constant state of flux. Mountainous places are not as quick to change hands. It takes more effort. It takes more dedication of forces and thought to move into mountains and to dislodge our opponent from them, or for our opponent to come in and dislodge us from them. And so gaining possession of these mountain assets takes away forces that could be used for other efforts. 
So that's an effect that it has on the rest of the country in terms of what our opponent is able to achieve, because they have to dedicate more to this than they would normally. You have to dedicate more to a mountain siege than you would a siege in the plains, because you have many other considerations, as we've been talking about, to consider. Many other considerations to consider. Yeah, see, that's logical. And of course, the other big thing that mountains convey for any primary force that is operating around them is this concealing factor. We are able to, to move, especially if we control the mountains and we can move closer to them or, or skirt through them in various places, we're able to maneuver in a way that our opponent cannot predict at that point. We control the mountains. They don't have the observation that we do. And so not only are we able to control this larger portion, but we're able to use it to our benefit. But again, these particular advantages are only available to us if our primary force is not the one holding the mountains. If we're using those smaller forces there and then using our primary force to maneuver and take advantage of what the mountain gives us from these smaller actions, from the smaller forces that are, that are kind of in control here. So the influence of the mountains on other parts of the country, well, that's huge. It's huge in ways that we wouldn't necessarily even think of, but controlling those mountains with the small forces, and like I said, using them to either conceal or give the advantage of movement in, in whatever other way we get, that's what the mountains are all about. And that's how we make the best use of the mountains on the country around it. The third point that he makes is, is we're, you know, we're talking about the aspects of the mountains as a strategic barrier. And this means that it is a barrier for our strategy. Like last time we were, this, for previous point, we were talking about the mountains as a physical barrier, using them as a tactical thing. But in this particular case, they act as a strategic barrier because as we had addressed before, a decisive battle is difficult as a defender. Because again, we're dealing with the defensive mountains and, you know, several episodes, we're going to actually switch over to offense and be talking about how we offensively approach all these different situations where we've been talking about defense. But in this particular case, again, achieving that decisive battle result is difficult because the second that we're able to flip it, you know, the second we're able to take our defense against their attack and make it instead into a counterattack against them, our enemy immediately is given the same advantages that we've just walked away from because now they are the defender in the mountains. And so the counterattack, the pursuit, as we had talked about, is so much more difficult in a mountainous position because of this big reason as well. You know, we, we get them, we're starting to go back, and then they are able to, to take advantage of the same situations that we were when they were assaulting us. So that is something that we really need to think about so that we're not put into a bad position. Because you think about it, like if we overextend with as hard as it is to bring up support, well, it's not a good thing. It's not, it's not good. So as a strategic barrier, it limits us. It limits our options. It limits what we can do and how we can utilize a tactical result to our best ability. And it's very different, very different than it is an open terrain where we are able to take our tactical result and turn it into a strategic result as well. Here it's a little bit different. And the other thing, when we're talking about the unpredictability and the ability of not being able to like coordinate things the way we want because of the mountain's nature and its aspect of, as a strategic barrier, it's extremely disruptive a lot of times, like, especially when we're thinking back toward, toward any previous time or even a lot of areas now, bad roads, 
bad roads are huge. We, we need to get from one place to another. And so if we're trying to send material or we're trying to send communications and there's bad roads or bad weather, you know, think about floods, avalanches, snowstorms, blizzards. There's a lot of things that can go wrong when you're dealing with mountains and, and they're kind of disruptive to ourselves. Um, there's always the partisan threat. If our opponent is using irregular forces, the mountains, we, we can't necessarily predict for that. We can't account for that in our strategic planning because it is so unpredictable. We can say, okay, we anticipate partisan threats when we're in the mountains, but because we can't see them coming off like we can from a conventional fight, there's much less that we can do in preparation there. And of course, as I talked about before, when we were taught, when I was over at Ragnarok and we were operating on this mountain, you know, we'd have our force going this way and that force going that way. And then it was like, okay, well, I hope that you're able to achieve your tactical result because if I'm able to achieve mine and I arrive at where we're supposed to meet and you're not there, well, I'm going to be in trouble. But there's no way to communicate. You know, things are happening so fast and every, every force needs to be dedicated that you just kind of have to wing it in a lot of cases and not be able to rely on solid communication because we don't have the calls. We don't have like flags that we can go to where it's like, oh, okay, that person's in charge. I'm going to follow them or I'm going to follow them. You know, we can see the flanks coming in. We can ride that momentum. We don't have that option when we're dealing with mountains and with the limitations that mountains give to us. And things are a little bit different when we're dealing with modern warfare, like, like today warfare, because we have, you know, aerial superiority. We have jets, we have drones, we have helicopters that are able to give a far better impression of what's going down beneath us. But again, looking at the result of the American-Afghan war, that aerial superiority does not guarantee victory. It does not, because there's so many other things that are at play here. And so the mountains, again, are not just a physical barrier. They are not just something that can be used or come up against as an obstacle, but they also represent a significant strategic barrier as well. And the fourth point he makes is on provisioning the army. And it's kind of the same thing as we were just talking about with communications. You know, provisioning an army that requires a baggage train. It requires ammunition trains. And so if something happens to disrupt that, you know, a bridge goes out because of a flood, because of an avalanche, a blizzard comes and blocks off the passes, well, that army is now stuck and is, is having a Donner, Donner Party moment because of the strategic barrier that the mountains represent. So real quick, going back over those four points that we had just said, sorry, as I mess with my pages here, we had talked about the mountains as a battlefield. And of course, the fact that it favors the smaller forces over the larger and what those smaller forces can do, like delaying actions or making demonstrations. We talked about the influence, of course, of mountains on the surrounding country and what we're able to do with them in result. The aspect of a, a strategic barrier and then, of course, the provisioning of an army. And before we kind of move into the maxims, the, the what should we take away from this, according to Clausewitz, a couple of the things that I kind of thought was interesting. He was talking about how we have to be like water when we're dealing with mountains. And the reason for this is the majority of mountains, especially the ones that he would have seen, were crafted, you know, the valleys and the ridges, were crafted by water, by rivers, cutting through and, and eroding and, and kind of cutting, you know, 
making these mountains be what they are. But he said, it was interesting because he also said, there are certain mountains that kind of defy this. When you think about the Alps or, you know, outside of Europe, when you think about the Rockies, or when you think about, I'm not quite sure what the mountains, the mountain ranges in New Zealand, but we've all seen, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, you've seen those gorgeous mountains in New Zealand. And these mountains were not created the same way. They were created by violent tectonic action that thrust that earth up and kind of made it into the jagged, cragged place that it is. And so the rules, again, for these different mountains can be different because something like the Rockies, who are also relatively new, there's going to be places there that are not shaped by water. There's going to be plenty that are, whether it be liquid water moving through or whether it be glaciers that have moved through and carved out places like Lake Missoula. So he recommends that we be like water when we're dealing with mountains and finding principal zones rather than tributaries because we can see where things come together and that's the place that we want to mount our defense, not kind of off of the way, not on a smaller creek or creek or stream, but when we're dealing with a larger portion of it, because then we can defend a larger portion of it. And the mountain tells us exactly where to be when we're listening and following the water. And so that's the best place for our massive troops to be gathered. Ridges, because we're talking about valleys. So we're thinking, okay, what about ridges? Maybe we go up and we perch on top of a ridge. We get that uh, observation. You know, we, we take away the ability of the mountain to obscure a lot of parts from us. We can see ridges actually limit our mobility even more than the valleys do. Because when you look at it, the valleys are connected. You've got these, these rivers, these streams that are going together in this kind of network. So you can go up one river way and then kind of bend around and come down a stream tributary or, or whatever tactically you want to do. If we're on a ridge, we don't have that. We don't have the connectivity there because everything uh, around us is divided by these streams and by these rivulets. And so it, it, our, the bulk of our force needs to actually avoid ridges because they make it much harder to maneuver. We're far easier to trap when we're on a ridge than we are when we're dealing with a valley. And on a ridge, we're not getting that same benefit in many cases as the, of the, the flank, you know, the ability to anchor our flank in one particular place. So maxims, what are our final takeaways? What are our thoughts on this particular subject? Well, Clausewitz has four for us. The more lofty and inaccessible the mountains are, the further the separation of forces. You know, as we had talked about before, that separation can be lethal. It makes things really hard to coordinate. It makes really like baggage trains and communications very difficult. And so the more lofty and inaccessible the mountains, the harder that is. Again, if you have ever been to or live near the Rockies, you will understand that trying to maneuver or fight a war in there would be very, very, very difficult and maddening and nigh impossible in a lot of cases. The second maxim that he has for us here is that shallow lines are more effective because they do allow us a little bit more to maneuver and they do allow us the ability to bring up support a little bit more. Super thick lines while, you know, being able to absorb a punch, as it were, a little bit easier, also limit our mobility even more. And so using shallow lines and being able to have reserves close by to use as we need or where we need is very important. And this point feeds into our third maxim, which is to draw reserve forces from those down the line who haven't been attacked. Again, we're looking for, for fresh forces, not necessarily to bring people in from outside from 
from different places other than the line because we need people who are prepped, who are ready to go. But that's who we're drawing from, is these forces who haven't been attacked further down the line. And the fourth one is that we need to make sure that we are adequately defending our forces at crucial points because, as we had talked about before with trying to do a counterattack, once we lose a point, if we're on the defensive, once we lose a point, it is hard, if not impossible, to recover. And so we have to make sure that we're keeping our strategic positions well defended. Small forces used as a delaying action or as, uh, you know, for another purpose, that is not uh, governed by this particular maxim. But if we are having to defend things at crucial points, we need to be particularly mindful of them. Because if we lose them, we're not going to get them back, most likely. Well, before we end today, there is one last quote that I wanted to, uh, to share with you because he feels very strongly about this. And you'll notice that I didn't pick a fight with the dead guy this episode at all. That's because I totally agree with his analysis. You know, I live in the mountains. And a lot of this stuff, again, was counterintuitive. But the more I thought about it, I was like, wow, he nailed it. He nailed it with this particular section. But he says here, a general who allows himself to be beaten in an extended mountain position deserves to be brought before a court-martial, which is to say, only an idiot who needs to be relieved of his office would be defeated in a mountain like this. Even though, again, some of the, some of the stuff he was saying is counterintuitive. You go into a, a mountainous position and you think, Okay, this is going to be it. I, you know, I do the same thing in Civ. I'm going to change up my tactics after reading this because in Civilization, I often will just, you know, thump things in there and try to maneuver and then not be able to make these decisive results happen rather than using the map mountain not necessarily as my chief strategic position, but as a complementary strategic position to the other things I'm doing. So a quick recap of everything that we've talked about today. We talked about the fact that, you know, the influence of the mountains is great, that it requires its own thinking, that we have to really apply its own set of rules and tactics to it, because the ones that we would use in open ground do not apply at all here. There are serious drawbacks, of course, and we had talked about those, including the fact that we cannot really bring our forces forward for a meaningful, decisive pursuit, and that, of course, there's always the danger of being cut off. We discussed his four points about mountains as a battlefield and the idea that smaller forces operate better there, the influence of the mountains on the surrounding country and how we can use that position to uh, benefit what the primary force is doing. We're talking about the aspect of a strategic barrier, of course, not just the physical one and the uh, complications that come with operating in mountains other than uh, open terrain and those same complications, how they apply to provisioning an army. And the theory of following the water is a good one if we're dealing with mountains who are principally formed by it. And then we have our, our final maxims and his entreaty for a general who is not competent in this particular means to just step down from their position. And by and large, I actually really enjoyed this one. Like I said, I was thinking about passing it over, and I'm glad I didn't because I thought there was some really interesting stuff in here. And I'm glad that you listened, and I hope you found it interesting as well. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. 
Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.